0: For the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and He will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, we need to make sure that we are prepared for the study of God's Word. Scripture tells us that at the moment that we put our faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation... We enter into an eternal relationship with God the Father that never, never ceases. That relationship is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, for every sin committed in human history, past, present, and future at the cross. He did all the work. We do not do any of the work. The moment of salvation, all of our sins are wiped clean. They're already paid for, but in terms of our experience in time... They're wiped clean. We use our illustration here of the top and bottom circle, the top circle representing our eternal relationship with Christ, which we are entered into at the instant of salvation. And the bottom circle represents our experience in the Christian life on a day-to-day basis. Whenever we sin, we are out of fellowship. Scripture says we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench the Holy Spirit, we are walking in darkness. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that you are sons of light, speaking to believers. That Because you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at that instant we know that at least 40 different things happen to the believer. There are 40 different spiritual realities that are true of every single believer, and that's characteristic of our position in Christ. At the moment we sin, though, we're out of fellowship positionally. We have something in our life, either thought or thought. Word or deed that has violated the absolute character of God. God is absolute righteousness. He is absolutely perfect. The perfection of God demands that he can have a relationship only with creatures that are also perfect. So that sin that we commit somehow affects that relationship with God. We don't lose it. We're not kicked out of the family, as it were. We're still in the family of God. Now, not everybody's in the family of God. Scripture says, as many as believed him... To them gave he the power to be called, or for as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. Remember, I always loved the way our, you know, everybody paints Jesus, this meek and mild Jesus. In fact, editorial comment, I was reading, I think it's either this week's or, I think it is this week's Time Magazine. And if you have a weak stomach, don't read the editorial on the last page because it, it takes the position of if Jesus were a candidate for the presidency and how he would run his campaign and it is the most subjective well, I won't say the, all the words I really want to apply to it it is the, some of the grossest heresy and blasphemy I have ever read and talks about how um, Oh, Jesus would just wouldn't go along with any of this stuff that that George W. Bush goes along with because he actually had a had executed a woman guilty of a heinous murder down in Texas, and Jesus of course wasn't for the death penalty. You know, I keep wondering I keep wondering what Bible these people are reading. Why they why they don't sit down and look at the scriptures because Jesus is the one who looked at the Pharisees and said you're of your father the devil, and you do his works. You see, we're not all born in God's family. We're all born in the devil's family. Scripture says we're born in the kingdom of darkness, and we are only at salvation transferred into, into the kingdom of his beloved Son, where we are adopted into God's family. One of the great truths of Scripture is our adoption into God's family, and that has to do with our eternal relationship. So when we sin as believers, a sin after salvation is still dealt with by the cross. We're out of fellowship. This is just temporary. And God has given us that grace recovery procedure to confess our sins. If we confess our sins, that is in privacy to God the Father as part of the priesthood of every believer, then we are instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness and we are instantly restored to fellowship with the Lord Where we're filled with the Holy Spirit and it is God the Holy Spirit who indwells every single believer and those who are in fellowship He fills and teaches them so that they can come to understand the truth of God's, the truths of God's Word. So that's why we begin every Bible class with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity if necessary to confess any known sins in your life in silence and privacy to God the Father and then we open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace that that in eternity past you knew everything that would happen in human history and you knew that Adam would disobey you in the garden and fall and that the penalty for sin would be death. And you knew that, that man could not save himself and so in your grace, in your love, you initiated a perfect plan for human history to send your son to die on the cross as our substitute. Father, we thank You that not only did You send Your Son to die on the cross as our substitute, but You have, throughout the centuries, revealed Your will to us in the Word, and that it is Your Word that is truth, and You have said that it is by means of Your Word that we are to grow spiritually by learning Your Word, letting it uh, sift through our thinking, saturate our thinking, assimilate it into our thinking, and then when we live on that basis, then we glorify You and we advance spiritually. So, Father, now as we study these important truths in your word tonight, we pray that you would help us to understand them and see how they relate to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll continue our study of James chapter 4. We're in the midst of a passage that deals with sins of the tongue, judging and maligning others in the congregation according to the context, but it applies in many other areas of life. We saw last time... And we have seen, we have several visitors here tonight, so we'll just kind of pick up the context a little bit. As we have studied in the book of James, what we have seen is that this congregation that James is addressing has fouled up by the numbers, so to speak. They have really messed up their life because they have become involved in a lot of non-biblical thinking. James had, had apparently been involved with them at one time. They had many had trusted Christ as their Savior, and then after James left, there were others that came into the congregation that that uh, did not accept the gospel and so ridiculed other believers, uh, some of the believers in the congregation. And then, because they were primarily Jewish, there was a lot of outside pressure from the Jewish community against those who had converted to Christianity. There were many other things going on in their lives, and as they faced these adversities, as they faced the sufferings in life, they were beginning to try to solve their problems, or they had been trying to solve their problems on the basis of their own understanding of problem-solving, whatever seemed to work. And, And as we have studied, whenever we are trying to solve our problems apart from God's provision in His Word, then the result is sin nature control of the soul and fragmentation of the soul. So instead of advancing towards spiritual maturity, this congregation is fragmenting from the inside out. It starts with the fragmentation of each individual believer because they are failing to use God's stress busters or problem-solving devices to handle the the situations in their lives. And they are then getting involved in overt sins. They are angry with one. They have mental attitude sins of anger and hatred, bitterness, jealousy towards one another. Then that becomes manifest as slander and gossip running each other down and as they do that the church just naturally picks up sides and divides itself one one against the other and just causes all kinds of problems and so James is having to address this to straighten everything out and that brings us up to date so to speak i mean we've been studying this a year and a half so it's hard to cover everything but that brings us to James chapter 4 verse 11 James chapter 4, verse 11, where we read, Do not speak against one another brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. We saw last time as we began the exegesis of this particular verse that it begins with a prohibition. And that prohibition in the Greek is, now see, those of you who are new need to realize that we're just trying to come up, get up to speed with this new technology. And when I did this earlier, all the Greek and everything was in there, looked so nice, and now nothing, you know, it's fouling up on me. So we'll just skip past it. The uh, Greek word is starts with the prohibition, the negative may looks something like this, M-E, plus the present active imperative of the verb kata laleo. K-A-T-A-L-A-L-E-O. And kata laleo means to speak against, to speak evil of someone, to defame them, here we go, Present active imperative of prohibition, meaning to speak against, to speak evil of someone, to slander someone, to verbally assassinate. And as a present imperative of prohibition, it indicates stop doing something you are already doing. There. Stop doing something you are already doing. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Brethren. Brethren indicates that he is talking to believers and their actions towards other believers. And we saw that this was a direct violation of what is called back in James 2, the royal law of love, which is that believers are to love one another as themselves. Jesus told his disciples the night before he went to the cross that they were to love one another just as Jesus had loved them. He was the model. How did he love them? He loved them by going to the cross and dying as a substitute for them. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, "No there is no greater love that a man can have than to give his life for another." And that of course he said primarily in reference to what was to take place the next day. Later that night he knew in his deity because he is undiminished deity and true humanity, and as undiminished deity he is eternal and he is infinite. And therefore, that applies to those two categories, eternality and infinity, apply to every aspect of his character. So when it comes to knowledge, he has eternal and infinite knowledge. And because he has infinite knowledge, he knows all the knowable. He knows everything there is to know, past, present, and future. And in his deity, he knew that later that night he would be arrested And that he would go on trial the next morning. And even though he was sinless and there was no fault within him. There would be trumped up charges against him. And he would be then taken to the cross where he would be crucified. And while he was being crucified God the Father would pour out upon him all the sins of the world. And he would pay that penalty because man cannot pay the penalty for his own sin. Only perfect Jesus Christ could pay that penalty as a substitute for man. And so he was addressing his disciples and he said, Love one another as I have loved you. Scripture says God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. So the command was to love as Christ loved us. And we have studied that, that that indicates sacrifice. It indicates the initiative that God took to love fallen mankind from eternity past. And it involved all of the different characteristics of that mental attitude love. This is not an emotional love. It's not a sentimental love. It's not a love based on the fact that man was so wonderful and so good that God just wanted to save man because he saw so many good things in him. That is not the picture that we have in Scripture. The picture that we have in Scripture is that the human race had been given an opportunity in Adam. Adam sinned, and if God had just operated on his justice, he would have been fair and right to have destroyed the human race at that instant in time. But God is not merely just and righteous. God is also love, and so in his love, he initiated a perfect plan for man's salvation. Now, what had happened in this congregation is they completely forgot about Jesus' mandate to love one another. And so they were running each other down. They were involved in all sorts of verbal sins, sins of the tongue, gossip, slander. That's how they were responding to the tests that they were facing. Now, see, in life, we go through all kinds of tests. The first kind of test that we face is a test from our own sin nature. This is the sin nature test. We have seen in our study of God's Word that every single person from Adam on is born with a sin nature. Only Adam and Jesus Christ were born without sin natures. Adam was cre- was not born. He was created. He was created perfect. Perfect God can create nothing less than perfection. And Adam was given a soul and that soul was the ability to make a choice a free choice the ability is called volition and there was one prohibition in the garden and that was that they were not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the instant adam ate the issue was not the woman's response she ate first but she was deceived the issue was adam's response because adam was the head of the race he was the designated authority so when he disobeyed God, he immediately acquired a sin nature. This is a propensity to evil. And as a fallen creature, he desired to exercise his own independence from God and to solve his problems on his own. See, this is another thing we have to remember when we study the issue of problem solving. And that is that the greatest problem you and I will ever face is the problem of sin. When Adam sinned, we'll put an A here on the board for or just put Adam there and God here. God was absolute righteousness. That's the plus, plus R, and Adam is over here as minus R. The but prior to salvation, I mean prior to the sin, Adam was plus R, and there was perfect relationship between them. But the instant Adam chose to disobey God, sin erected a barrier between him and God because Adam's righteousness was not good enough to measure up to God's perfect righteousness. So all of mankind's problems, all the adversity, all the suffering, all the heartache that the human race faces is a result of Adam's choice to disobey God. Because God told Adam that in the instant you eat of the fruit, you will die. That was not physical death because Adam did not die physically at that instant. It was spiritual death. He was separated from God. And we know that it was spiritual death because when God came, came that afternoon, as was his habit, as is described in Genesis, to talk with Adam and his wife, that they ran and hid. They had never run and hid before. Why did they run and hide? Because they knew that they were now sinners. They were minus R, and so they were separated from God. And so when God addressed them, He said, Adam, where are you? Now God is omniscient. He knew exactly where they are. The reason God said, where are you? Is to emphasize to Adam and to get Adam to think about why he was where he was. That he was no longer out there in the garden with God, but he was hiding from God. Why are you where you are? And so Adam had died spiritually, and there was a sin barrier between God and man, but God, in His perfect love, made a solution. And that was to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So if God solved the greatest problem that we will ever face, then God can solve any other problem that we will face. That's the starting point. So when we look at the slide that begins our our first type of testing, sin nature testing, then what we realize is that this comes from the sin nature. Prior to salvation, the Scripture says, we are in bondage. We are slaves to sin. We have no option but to sin. No matter how good we are, no matter how wonderful we are, no matter how great our personality might be, and there's many, many wonderful people that are not believers, the Scripture says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It doesn't say all of our unrighteousness is as filthy rags. It says all of our unrighteousness is as filthy rags. And the unrighteousness is produced from the sin nature. Now, what does the sin nature look like? Well, this is our diagram of the sin nature. Use a diamond. Does that show up fairly well or have I? We're trying all this new stuff so you can see it. It's a diamond. The inner motivation of the sin nature is the lust pattern. There are all types of lust. You have power lust, approbation lust, sexual lust, money lust, materialism lust chemical lust for various types of drugs, criminal lust. There are all patterns of lust that motivate us in various directions. The sin nature itself has an area of strength that produces human good. Human good is all those good, all those good deeds that we can produce on our own power and on our own energy. Remember, some of the people that were most antagonistic to Christianity and the gospel in those early years, were extremely moral people. They were upright people. They were good people. They were men and women of integrity. They were the Pharisees. They were the uh, Judaizers, the legalists that came in to Galatia following the Apostle Paul's evangelism of that area. And they came in to say, No, no, Paul might have taught you some good things about Jesus Christ having died for your sins, but that's not enough just to trust in Christ you also have to have a lot of good works. Well, they were teaching, as we've seen in our study of Galatians, they were teaching a way of gaining God's approval through good deeds, and they didn't distinguish between the fact that that man on his own can produce good that is not good enough to meet the standard of God. So the sin nature not only produces human good, but the sin nature also has an area of weakness. This is the area where you are most prone to sin, an area of weakness that produces personal sins. And personal sins, as we've seen, come in three categories. Mental attitude sins are among the worst. I'm always amazed when you talk to people about sin, they immediately focus on overt sins, such as some kind of sexual sin, or drug abuse, or physical violence. Today, of course, racism always seems to make the top of the list for people. But the Bible doesn't focus on any of those as the worst sins. The Bible focuses on Mental attitude sins as the worst sins, especially arrogance. Arrogance was this sin of pride that caused Lucifer's fall from heaven. Lucifer was a creature that God created, the highest of all of the angels. Incidentally, God created each angel individually. They're not related. They don't have mothers and fathers. Angels, Jesus said, neither marry nor are given in marriage, so they don't create baby angels. And angels are each isolated. And that's important because there was not a provision for salvation for the angels. Why? The human race is biologically, genetically unified. We are all one in Adam. We are all related. So Jesus Christ could come and be true humanity, and he would be related to every other human being genetically. Therefore, he could die as a substitute for the race. That's why there was no salvation for the angels. Lucifer fell and his sin was pride. He wanted to be like God. He said, "I will be like the most high." So the worst sins are mental attitude sins, and then there are sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, maligning, ridicule, and then there are overt sins such as murder, thievery, uh, adultery, fornication, and and such. Now, you're motivated by your lust patterns, and everybody has different lusts. Some of you may have have lust patterns that relate more to money and material things. Other of you may have uh, lust patterns that relate to sexual lust. Others may have lust patterns related to uh, approbation lust. And that drives you in one of two directions, which we call trends. Everybody has certain trends. Your trends may be towards antinomianism, which is licentiousness. Or you may have a trend towards asceticism, morality. This is the same thing you see with the uh, with the Pharisees. They had a trend towards asceticism, towards religious activity, towards extreme morality. But Jesus said they they were uh, a bed of vipers. They were uh, like they were moral degenerates. On the other hand, you can have your trend towards licentiousness and antinomianism, which means you just want to do whatever you want to do and that's called immoral degeneracy. And this is the sin nature, and the sin nature is the source of temptation and testing for us. It is the sin nature that offers us, uh, continuously offers us some bait to trap us into some sin, and it is our volition that decides whether or not we are going to succumb to that particular temptation. Now, what happens here is we see in testing, you get through some kind of overt circumstance. And at that particular moment in time, when, when there's the outside pressure, I'll just wait a minute to let him get out. At that particular moment when, um, every now and then we have a little medical emergency here, so they'll take care of that. When we come under temptation or testing and there's that overt pressure of the soul, then it's easy to respond in some way from the sin nature. And this is exactly what's going on in this this situation in the congregation James is addressing. They are responding from their lust pattern, specifically approbation lust, their lust for approval. And I think power lust as well because of the way the church is divided up into antagonistic groups. And the way they're trying to solve the problem is through sins of the tongue. They're they're going to build... Each person wants to build themselves up by tearing other people down. And you can never build yourself up by tearing other people down. I see it happen in marriages. I see it happen in families. I see it happen in all kinds of circumstances. One of the worst is when it happens in a church. And every now and then you run across some pastor who wants to build his ministry by running down somebody else's ministry and telling everybody what's wrong with some other pastor. You can never elevate yourself at the expense of other people. All you will do is destroy yourself from the inside out. I remember a couple of years ago, really it was longer than that, uh, uh, some very close friends of mine went through a divorce. And when that happened, it was a shock to me and it was a shock to the wife. And uh, in the midst of that, I was trying to calm her down and tell her, look, the worst thing you can do is give in to anger, give in to Uh, your desire to get even. She came out of a family and a background that really, they were very vindictive people. That was their trend of the sin nature. And I was just trying to calm her down and to keep her from just multiplying the problems by getting involved in a lot of hostility and anger, giving into that, running down uh, her husband and all of this. And in the process, of course, she thought that what I was really doing was siding with him and trying to justify him. And so, you know, that was the last time that I ever heard anything from her. But see, people don't understand how destructive it is to get involved in the sins of the tongue. Whenever you get involved in any kind of uh, vituperation or you get involved in any kind of vengeance or revenge motivation, the person that gets hurt is yourself. It is your soul that is damaged, not the other person. So we see. The sin nature is the source of our problem. And this is the first type of testing that we run into as believers is from our own sin nature. The second type of testing is what the Bible calls cosmic thinking. This is from the Greek word cosmos, which is normally translated world or worldly. But what it really means is a system of thinking. That's how it's used many times in scripture. Cosmos has to do with that which is an orderly systematic approach to something. That's why our English word cosmetics came from cosmos. Is because when a woman applies cosmetics to her face, she she is organizing and presenting a pleasing appearance to her face. So that's part of the meaning of cosmos. It has to do with something that has a systematic, orderly arrangement that is very attractive and pleasing to the beholder. Scripture teaches that it is Satan who is the god of the cosmos. This is his way of thinking. And he has has many different approaches. There are various religious groups, the false religions. There are false philosophies. There's a, a multitude of ways that Satan has to make the lie. And remember, Satan is called the father of lies. There, When Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he said, you You're de- the father of the devil, and he is the father of lies. So that he is constantly trying to deceive mankind and to distract him from... Uh, obedience to God and from god 's plan of salvation first john two fifteen we 're told, do not love the world in James we just studied that when we want to be a the, the person who wants to be a friend with the world is an enemy of God. you cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of god you 're either a friend of the world and an enemy of God or a friend of God and an enemy of the of the world, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now this applies to the believer and what this is saying is the same thing that James says earlier in James four, five and six when James said that if you love the world, you are an enemy of God. From the moment we are born, we begin to learn things. And our mind begins to, we'll draw this circle here to represent our mind. And we're constantly, from infancy, looking at all the data, all the things that are going on around us. And we seek to organize these things into an explanation of reality. Why things are the way they are. Where did they come from? How did I get here? Why am I important? And we begin to develop a whole series of ideas. Now this is sort of like somebody who sits down at a table and they have a big box filled with a thousand pieces from a jigsaw puzzle. They don't have a box top, so they don't have any idea what that puzzle is supposed to look like. And in fact, it's a very abstract puzzle, so it's not easy to figure out what the image is supposed to be. And so all they can do at the best at the beginning is just sort of guess as to what that image is supposed to look like. Well, they may finally learn a few things about jigsaw puzzles and realize that one of the first things you need to do is establish the frame. So they start digging through the bucket, looking for all the pieces that have straight edges, and they get them all out on the table and begin to start putting them together. But they don't have an idea of what the thing is supposed to look like as an end result. They're just generating that overall image from within themselves. And that's how man is apart from God and apart from God's revelation. And we we have a sin nature within us that has an affinity to this, this cosmic system that Satan is presenting. And so this natural attraction causes us to just suck up into our soul all of these various ideas that are very attractive and pleasing and make life fun and acceptable and exciting for us. But it is just putting together parts of those pieces of the puzzle. And then one day what happens is we realize we're stuck, that life really has no meaning anymore. We're looking at that jigsaw puzzle and there are big gaps. And we look in the bucket and there's still 800 pieces in that bucket. And we can't go any further. We're just stuck and we're frustrated. And we realize that there has to be something more to give meaning to this puzzle or we're just lost. And that's where modern man is. He's given up philosophically in in despair on finding meaning in life. He he just can't do it. Modern man realizes that on the basis of human intellect, on on the basis of human experience, man cannot generate the overall meaning that defines that puzzle anymore. And so you turn, you begin to look. And at that point you uh, turn to God and God makes it clear to you through somebody who explains the gospel to you that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And so Scripture says we are at that moment regenerated. And God makes us a new creature in Christ. And our responsibility at that point is to grow and mature as believers. We are to desire the sincere milk of the Word. Why? That you may grow thereby so we begin to learn but the problem with many christians is that they're looking at this puzzle now and they know they have these gaps and they have these problems and they think that well i'll just reach over here into christianity and grab a hundred or two hundred pieces and fit them into the puzzle and everything's going to work out but what scripture says is from the starting point in your life you tried to solve problems and explain life and put everything together and it was wrong because it was oriented to the world system, number one, and it was dominated by your sin nature, number two. So what you have to do as a believer, if you're really going to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you have to take your arm and you have to push everything off the table. And you have to start over, and the starting point is the Word of God. But the problem is that we are continually bombarded with ideas, with rationales, you know what a rationale is, that's a justification for your sin. Well, I'll confess it later, it's going to be fun now. Everybody else is doing it. These are the rationales, and we all succumb to those all the time because they're very attractive and appealing to our sin nature and to justify our sin. We're bombarded with ideas, with rationales. Um, all kinds of pleasures. Not that pleasure is wrong in and of itself, but it becomes the end result for us. So all of these things are encapsulated in what is the Bible calls worldliness. Worldliness is not wearing your hair a certain way or dressing a certain way or going to movies or anything like that. Worldliness has to do with how you think about the things that are going on around you. Are you thinking as God would have you to think? Uh, defined by the Scriptures, or are you thinking on the basis of the culture around you? So we are to stop loving the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you're a believer and you're operating on cosmic thinking, you're out of fellowship, and you're operating on your sin nature. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, these three phrases define for us the problem with cosmic thinking. First of all, it appeals to the lust of the flesh. Flesh is a term used in the scripture again and again to define the sin nature. So this is that internal motivating uh, factor in every one of us, the sin nature and the lust pattern of the sin nature. And the cosmic system is external. It is the ideas around us. And it appeals to the sin nature within us. For all that is in the world, first of all, the lust of the flesh, and secondly, the lust of the eyes. We see things that we desire. We see material things. We see pleasurable things. We see activities that people are involved in when we say, I want that. And that becomes the motivation of our life so that all of our life is structured around uh, the three-dimensional things of this life as opposed to the spiritual goals and the spiritual priorities set by God the Father. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So this is the first category of testing. The third category of testing is crisis testing. We all go through various crises in life, and it is how you handle those crises that's going to determine how you advance spiritually. You may go through a personal crisis. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's marital failure. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, loss of a best friend. Maybe it has to do with some sort of disease. Personal crisis can come in many different uh, varieties. But what the test is, is that in the midst of that crisis, when we're going through incredible emotional pain, are we going to yield to the temptation to start running our life on the basis of emotion, rather than on the basis of the doctrine that is in our soul, the principles from God's Word? So the third arena of testing is crisis testing. Crisis testing can also involve people, which is the... Fourth category of testing, people testing. People testing happens because we are continuously involved with other people. We're married to people. We are children of people. We work with people, and these people all have sin natures. And some days they are operating on the worst parts of that sin nature, and other days they are not. But when we live with these people, and sometimes these people have personalities that are abrasive to us, and yet we may be in such a circumstance where we have to work with them on a day-to-day basis, or we may have to work for them, worst case yet, work for them, and maybe they have uh, things that maybe they really don't like our personality, and so they always pick us for the worst job, or they Uh, put us in circumstances we don't like. And so the temptation is respond to that person by running them down, by saying bad things about them, by as soon as we hear some story about them, we spread the gossip and we try to get back at them on the basis of uh, sins of the tongue. So people testing is the fourth category of testing that we go through. Well, I'm just not doing real well with this order organization at all tonight, so we're just going to shut that down. People testing is the fourth category, and the fifth category of testing involves system testing. System testing is an organization composed of people under the command of other people functioning under a particular policy designed to fulfill an object. Now, what that means is, to break it down, we're involved in all kinds of systems, You have a system at church. Church, you have a system of authority. You have the pastor and you have the deacons. And then you have the congregation. All of which are under the authority of the scriptures. You also have your system at work. If you're in the military, you have a chain of command that you are under and you have to follow. You may be in some other line of work where you are, uh, working for somebody and you have an employee, uh, an employer who sets certain policies and maybe those policies run completely against your personal desires or wishes sometimes. You just run up against that. So we face all kinds of systems. We have legal systems, the laws of the land and maybe uh, because of the way the laws are structured in terms of tax code and things like that, you feel like you are particularly uh, taken advantage of by the legal system in the state that you're in or in the country that you're in. You have um, uh, economic systems. You have capitalism and socialism, communism, various economic systems. And if you live in a country with a certain particular economic system where you can't get ahead, or you can't ever uh, earn a living, then you may feel victimized by that economic system. So system testing is one category of testing that we have to face. And then sixth, there is thought testing, and this is related to the uh, cosmic thinking that we were talking about either, the cosmic system, what's going on in our own thinking, what we think about, what we allow our minds to dwell on. Romans twelve two emphasizes the importance of thinking for the believer. We are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. See a lot of people think that Christianity is just sitting around and meditating on nothing or having a really good, feel good time at some sort of singing session, singing a bunch of hymns. But the emphasis of scripture over and over again is on our thinking on our thinking, learning the Word of God, learning to think as God would have us to think, learning to think about reality as God has defined it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking, that you may demonstrate what the will of God is. See, first you change, notice the order there, first you change your thinking, then you change your activity. It's a change from the inside out. It's not a legalistic change where you stop doing a lot of activities that somebody decides you shouldn't do. It's it's always funny to run into different groups from legalistic churches, and we've seen that before. And I've talked to people who uh, have used the example of a seminary student I knew who had worked as a youth pastor. And at his particular church where where he had worked, uh, they thought that ladies ought to always wear dresses. So, women were never allowed to wear uh, pants or slacks or blue jeans or anything like that. So, when they took all the high school kids on a ski trip, all the girls had to wear a dress over their bib overalls. See, that, that's legalism. That's trying to change people from the outside and not change from the inside as a result of learning the principles of God's Word, what we call Bible doctrine. So. The Scripture says, Do not be conformed to this world, to cosmic thinking, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking, that you may demonstrate by your overt lifestyle what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Ephesians 4.23 says, And that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Again, the emphasis is on what you think. Colossians 3.2 states, "...set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth." That's talking about the focus of your mind. It's not talking about being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's not what that passage is saying. It's saying, set your minds, let, let the categories of your thinking be dominated by doctrine and not by earthly thinking. It's hard to think about thinking and how we think, and what we think about. But we have to, as believers, to focus on the content and the way in which we think about things. And that passage emphasizes the contrast between thinking that is related to things above Bible doctrine, and thinking that is related to things on the earth. And that recalls to us, or should, what we studied a couple of months ago in James 3:13 through 15 where James defined cosmic thinking as earthly, natural, and demonic. Why is it demonic? Because cosmic thinking has an affinity with the basic thinking of Satan before the fall. First of all, these are the characteristics. First of all, it was arrogance. He was self-absorbed. He was impressed with who he was and thought God and everybody else ought to be impressed with who he was that led to hostility towards God. He was antagonistic towards God. That's the second characteristic of cosmic thinking. The third characteristic of cosmic thinking is it puts its priority in systems of thought and human thinking, so that we're impressed with our own uh, concepts, our own ideas. We're impressed with a Kant's philosophy or we're impressed with Wittgenstein's philosophy or we're impressed with Hegel's philosophy and so man is impressed with what he has developed rather than being willing to submit to the word of God so three characteristics of cosmic thinking are first of all arrogant self absorption secondly hostility towards God third a priority on human thinking and fourth the desire to control and manipulate that was demonstrated by Lucifer. When he fell, he immediately went out in order to sow seeds of discord among the angels to, and eventuated in winning a third of them to himself so that he would have a kingdom to run and control. That's why you see today as, as our culture, as American culture, has drifted further and further away from its biblical roots, you've seen in the last 20 years an emphasis on power. On power, on control. You go to, uh, seminars are offered how to manipulate people, how to motivate people is a more subtle way of putting it, but it's basically how to control people, uh, and control those around you to get them to do what you want them to do. This is bled over into Christianity, and back in the 80s, there were a number of books that came out called Power Evangelism and, and Power Healing and Power Encounters, and Power became a uh, a buzzword especially out of and it had a big impact even in new age thinking so it was the idea of controlling and manipulating people proverbs 24:10 states if you are slack in the day of distress your strength is limited what allows you to make it through that day of distress is bible doctrine If you do not have doctrine in your soul, you may think you are successful in solving your problems, but the end result is going to be fragmentation of the soul. This is a little artist's work that Gail did for us. That soul represents, the five circles inside the soul represents the components of our soul. We're made up of of immaterial components, self-consciousness, the SC, mentality, which is where the, the thinking of the soul takes place, E is for emotions, C is for conscience, where our norms and standards reside, and the V is our decider, volition. The more we respond to the pressures of life, the outside adversity of life, through trying to solve problems ourselves from our own resources and whatever techniques man comes up with, the more it creates subtle fissures and cracks in our soul, like hairline cracks and steel. And one of the things they do with steel is to stress test it. So they take it and they put it in a situation where there's an incredible amount of outside pressure on it to re- to reveal whether or not there are these hairline, hidden hairline fractures inside the steel. And this is what happens in the believer's life. God takes us through certain circumstances and allows us to go through certain circumstances in order to put us in that pressure to reveal whether or not we have these fissures in our soul or whether or not we are relying upon his word and his principles to solve those problems. God has provided a perfect solution for us to handle every single sin. This is what we've been studying throughout the book of James. The soul is inside the fortress. God provides a perfect fortress and when we enter that fortress through the use of 1 John 1:9, then we are protected. Each of these bricks in the fortress represent the different doctrines, the different spiritual skills that the Scriptures describe for us that protect us in the midst of crisis, so that whatever situation we're in, we can be like David facing Goliath and say the battle is the Lord's. We can say with the Apostle Paul, I have been in every kind of circumstance. I have learned how to be with nothing and I've learned how to abound I can do all things. I can live in any circumstance, no matter what the overt adversity and pressure might be. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus said He came to give us His peace and His joy, and it only comes by residing inside the fortress of doctrine that God provides. But in order to erect that fortress around your soul, you have to learn doctrine over and over again you have to, to come to Bible class you have to learn the word you have to let the word sift through your thinking we have to saturate our souls with the principles of God's word because he tells us that his word is sufficient his grace is sufficient because if Jesus Christ solved the greatest problem we will ever face at the cross then Jesus Christ will, will solve every other problem we will face in human history Now, the problem with the congregation that James is addressing is they have forgotten the soul fortress. They have forgotten all of these principles, and so they're trying to solve their problems through sin nature control. There's antagonism, there's hatred, there's division. In James 4.1, it talks about the fact that they've almost come to, to blows in the congregation because of the division that's there. And one way they handled their problems was by judging one another. Look at Matthew 7, verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 1. There we read, Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured out to you. Jesus is addressing the disciples. This is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And He begins with... the Prohibition, do not judge lest you be judged. Whenever you get involved in judging other people, what you are doing is setting yourself above the law. You're setting yourself up as God that you have all the knowledge necessary to judge other people. So this is a sin in and of itself to judge other people. So first of all, whenever you commit this sin of judging, slander, gossip, you're going to come under triple compound Divine discipline. Why is it triple discipline? First of all, you're committing a sin, judging. So you're going to be disciplined for that sin. Secondly, you will be judged for the sin that you are accusing the other person of. It doesn't matter whether or not they've committed it. That's not the issue. The issue is you are spreading it around, so you will be judged for that. This is the point in Matthew 7, 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And that brings up the third basis for judgment is by our standard of measure, it will be measured out to us. So we are judged, first of all, for the sin of judging. We we receive divine discipline for the sin we're accusing that person of. And third, the standard of our own judgment becomes the standard by which God judges us. So whenever you get involved in any kind of sin of the tongue, just remember you're setting yourself up for three levels of divine discipline. This leads us to the doctrine of the public lie. One of the greatest ways in which Satan maligns believers and one of the greatest tools that Satan uses to destroy local churches is through the public lie. It not only happens in churches, it happens in in, uh, businesses, it happens in the military, it happens in government, where you begin to say something about somebody, whether it's True or not is irrelevant, but it's said in a malicious way that is designed to assassinate their character and it's designed to destroy, uh, what, in the church, to design to destroy whatever, uh, testimony they have. Let's just wrap up tonight. We'll just get started and look at the definition. The public lie is the most malicious form of sins of the tongue and embodies all of them. Gossip, maligning, judging, vilification, and revenge. The goal of the public lie is to spread true or false information. See, sometimes people get the idea it's only gossip if it's not true. If it's true, it's okay. No, if it's true or false, it's still gossip because you're running down something. It's not your job to be the morals police and to run around making sure everybody else gets what's coming to them. Jesus Christ is the supreme court, is the supreme judge in the supreme court of heaven, and nobody is going to get away with anything. And all we are to do is leave it in the hands of the Lord and in the supreme court of heaven, and everything will be taken care of. So, you just keep your mouth shut. If you're involved in a system, no matter how bad it is, and you feel like you're the victim, you just keep your mouth shut and put it in the hands of the Lord. If you're involved with uh, people around you who are running you down or causing you problems and you feel like it's unjustified, just put it in the hands of the Lord. Don't try to solve it yourself because all you're going to do is create an even greater problem. Whatever you do, don't get involved in the sins of the tongue. What's the goal of the public lie? The goal of the public life is to spread true or false information about someone, specifically to destroy them. In this context... In James, it is spreading information about other believers in order to build up one's own influence or ministry. Trying to build your ministry on somebody else's suffering. And you can never do that. Point number two, the public lie is always motivated by mental attitude sins such as bitterness, jealousy, anger, and hatred. And we have already seen how this dominates the church that James is addressing. Psalm 64.3 says, These who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, they aimed bitter speech as their arrow, describing the pain that is the result of the sins of the tongue. Psalm 119.69 The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe... Thy precepts. This is the attitude of the believer. No matter what happens, if you are the victim of gossip, you're the victim of public lie, then what is the solution? David states it in the second stanza. With all my heart, I will observe thy precepts. In other words, two rights don't, I mean, two wrongs don't make a right. If somebody else is maligning you, gossiping, running you down, your solution is not to respond in kind, but to keep your mouth shut, Scripture says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You put it in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven and move on. Well, we'll come back and finish the doctrine of the public lie and then look at the Supreme Court of Heaven next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You that Your Word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. You have provided everything we need for every single problem because you have foreseen them from eternity past. In your omniscience, you knew everything that we would ever face. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening without hope, without faith, without eternal life, we pray that right now they would take that opportunity to make certain their eternal destiny. All that is necessary is for you to accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. You don't have to Join a church, you don't have to reform your life, you don't have to give money to the church. Scripture says it's simple, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now Father, we just pray that you would help us to remember the things that we have studied tonight, that they would be recalled to our mind by the Holy Spirit when necessary and that we would respond in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.